Alright guys, tonight we are going to be doing the Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence as a part of our series on apologetics. Um, last week we focused on the meaning of evidence, what evidence is, and um, whether there's evidence for God and what that might look like. Um, tonight we are going to actually dive into an actual argument for God's existence. This one is probably tied for my favorite next to the uh, moral argument, which is really a family of arguments. And uh, as we'll see, we'll be looking at two different versions of the Kalam tonight. Let's go into it. Go ahead and click over. All right, so some preliminary definitions uh, that I'm going to be using briefly. So existentially related, I'll talk about that when that comes up. A concrete object is an object that has the power and disposition to causally interact with other objects. So a, a concrete object can cause other objects and be caused by them. A contingent object is an object whose existence is unnecessary. A necessary, is an object, uh, a necessary object is an object whose existence is necessary. And the principle of explanation, which will be used in uh, one, of, one of my arguments, um, is that for any con uh, contingent concrete object, the fact that the object exists is explained by something other than itself. Okay? And then causal finitism, which will, will come up in this lecture slash dialectic, is the theory that infinite backwards causal chains are impossible. Now if that sounds confusing, it will become it will make more sense as we actually interact with these ideas. Go on. So, Alexander Proust's version of the Kalam argument is, as far as I know, premise one, something causes something I know. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's far-fetched. But um, premise two, there's no circular chain of essentially related causes. Premise three, there is no infinite chain of causes in the past. And then four, therefore, there is an uncaused concrete being. Uh, typo there, there's an uncaused concrete cause or being, bit of a typo. So that is, that is his argument. Let's see how we can argue for it. Go on. So premise one, that something causes something. David Hume famously disputed this principle um, the principle of causality, um, the idea that objects are causally related. But his arguments against PC have long since been abandoned by philosophers who specialize in this area, and if you have any questions regarding this, feel free to ask me later. It's a bit, if I were to go down that rabbit hole, it would take a long time to be able to sift through it, so I'm just going to put a pin in that, and if you have any questions about it, we can address that later. Defense of premise two, that there, there are no um, essentially related uh, circular chains of causes. Um, here's a, a little bit on, on way of defense there. A cause has to be in some way prior to its effect. But if you have a circularity of causes such that A causes B to exist, and B causes C to exist, and C causes A to exist, then in, S, then in order for A 
to be caused by C, A has to already exist in order to cause C to exist. In essence, a circularity of causes means that A causes A, and that A must therefore exist before A exists. Um, but for A to exist before itself would mean that A both exists and not exists at the same time, which is a logical contradiction, and so it is impossible. Okay. Uh, I'll give you an example. If there can be a circular chain of essentially related causes in time, and that just means essentially related means that I cause your existence, or my existence is caused by, it isn't just that um, some aspect of my existence is caused, but my actual existence. So if there can be a circular chain of essentially related causes in time, then conceivably it might be possible for me to be my own grandfather. But outside of science fiction, that is impossible. Right? So clearly, I cannot be my own grandfather um, because I would need to exist before I exist. Right? And outside of some science fiction time travel, that isn't the case. Things precede each other in a linear fashion in time. And that is how what we associate with causes. My grandfather causes my father. My father causes me. Um, and then that proceeds in a forward fashion. Um, and that's how we typically conceive of causality. Um, and so it would be bizarre and absurd if somehow um, my grandfather causes my father, my father causes me, and then I cause my grandfather in some sort of circular chain. Um, anyway, go forward. Okay, so what about the third premise? That there is no backwards uh, chain, uh, infinite, there is no uh, causally infinite backwards chain, right? There cannot be one. Now, how, how, how might we understand that? Um, what I'm basically saying is that not only do things cause each other, but this, the, the chain of causes of which I am related to, okay, um, cannot go back infinitely. Um, so my my uh, father causes me, my grandfather causes him, his father causes him, his father causes him. This um, premise, premise three, that there cannot, says that there cannot be okay, that chain infinitely. That there has to be a finite um, point where the chain of causes begins, and so the chain of causes must be a finite number. Now, what what, what are some ways I can argue for that? Well, there are three, what I find to be very convincing paradoxes about causality, um, and which involve, and which posit an infinite uh, chain of causes in each of these paradoxes. But each paradox results in not only an absurd uh, uh, event, but it, they result uh, in a, an outright contradiction. Right? And what we're going to find is that the way 
uh, is that if these paradoxes are not in not possible in reality, they're not possible in any possible world, right? They're impossible. What the thing that makes them impossible is that each of them it posits an infinite causal chain, right? So, Thompson's lamp. This is one of my favorites. Imagine that there is a lamp, and this lamp. And if you guys have any questions, let me know. Um, we don't have to wait till the end of the lecture for that. You can just ask me questions as I go. So imagine we have a lamp, and there is a button on this lamp that if you push it, it turns on. And if you push it again, it turns off. Push it again, it turns off, on, off, etc. Now say that we have a quantum computer hooked up to it. Um, well, okay. Let's let's before I, before I get to that, say say um. For an hour, um, every one minute, I press the button. Okay, so if it starts on, and I press the button every minute, at the end of the sixty minutes, let's see, off and on. Well, sixty is an even number. If I start with it on and then press it off on the odd numbers, on on the even numbers. 60 is an even number, so at the end of it, at the end of the 60 minutes, it will be on. Okay? That's easy to wrap our minds around. So for every, if we start on, every odd number, it will turn off. Every even number, it will be on. It will turn on, right? Okay, so if, if an, uh, an infinite causal chain is possible in reality, then in principle, what I'm about to tell you should also be possible. Okay. Between 2 p.m. and 3 p.m., uh, let us say that um, we hook up a quantum computer to the lamp, Thompson's lamp, and between 2 p.m. and 3 p.m., the lamp tur uh, turns on and off, and the button is pressed an infinite number of times. And at the end of the hour, the machine stops turning it on and off. Okay, so there will be an infinite number of times that the button is pressed, an infinite number of times that it's turned on and off, on and off, on and off, on and off. Okay. So here's a question. Right, at the end of the hour, at 3 p.m., will the lamp be on or off? What was the starting point again? What time? It was started at 1 p.m. And it ends at 2 p.m. But there is an infinite number of times in which the button was pressed. Right? What do you guys think? Is it going to be on or off? Is there really a way to tell? Because like you don't know how fast that they're turning it on and off. Well, and hypothetically. Well, it's going to be an infinite number of times. So presumably infinitely fast. If you go with classical physics, there might be a different result. If you go with quantum, quantum laptop that's coming. I don't think it matters. I, 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 it, the, what we accept the frame of the paradox. The paradox is telling us that that there's going to be an infinite number of times that the button is pressed. It's going to turn on and off an infinite number of times. At the end of the hour, it's going to stop doing that. Is it going to be on or off? 
How do we use infinite? Hmm? How do we use infinite? How do we know that it's going to be off hmm. when it's infinite? I, would, I didn't say that we do know if it's going to be off. Maybe it will be on. Okay. But here's the thing. Let's say that the lamp is on when we begin. And then an infinite number of times it's turned off and then on. An infinite number of times at the end of the hour, it's on. Well, guess what that means? That means that the number infinity is an even number. But how can... <laughs> but, but, you know what it also means? Okay? So, it ha the lamp has to be, for this to be possible, it has to be either on or off. If we begin with the lamp on, and at the end of it, one of these facts will be the case. It will, it will be on or it will be off. If it is on, then that means that infinity is an even number. If it's off, that means that infinity is an odd number. But, infinity cannot be an even number, and it cannot be an odd number, by definition. By definition, alright, infinity is n plus 1. So if n is an even number, n plus 1 would be an odd number. And if, if, if n is a odd number, n plus 1 would be an even number. So, it, so that means that it cannot be either even or odd. But if this is in principle possible to do in reality, because we're positing that an, an infinite causal chain is possible in reality, right? If, if that were possible, then the lamp has to be either on or off at the end of it. One of those facts must be the case. All right, there is a fact of the matter, but it can't, it also, so in other words, proposition A, the lamp must be on or off. Proposition B, right, the next one is, it, all, it cannot be on, and it cannot be off, because infinity is neither even or odd. But that's a contradiction. So the lamp must be on or off, and the lamp cannot be on or off. That's a contradiction. So this paradox... All right. If we suppose that an uh, infinite causal chain is possible in reality, we end up with a logical contradiction. The lamp has to be on or off, but it also cannot be either of the two. Because infinity cannot be either even nor odd by definition, n plus 1. All right. Grim Reaper's Paradox. Okay. So, this one's interesting. Let's say we have a guy named... Fred, okay? Call him Fred. And Fred, Fred is sleeping right now. It's 9 a.m., okay? And at 10 a.m., um, well, let's say at, at 9.30, a Grim Reaper has set his alarm clock for 9.30 a.m. And when he wakes up, if Fred is alive, he will swing his scythe and kill Fred. Okay? 
So if we posit this singular event, right, it seems possible, metaphysically possible, right? There's nothing about the idea of the Grim Reaper which is, which is internally incoherent. It's metaphysically possible in some possible world, right? So this paradox, right, well, so far, if we posit one Grim Reaper, then the scenario is at least possible, right? So if we can posit one and it's possible, and a infinite causal chain is possible, then we should be able to posit an infinite number of Grim Reapers, right? So let's say that at 9.15, which is 15 minutes before Grim Reaper number one, 9.15, Grim Reaper number two, he sets his alarm clock. When he wakes up, if Fred is alive, right, he's going to swing his scythe and kill Fred, chop his head off, okay? And then we have Grim Reaper number two, uh, number three, actually, um, at, uh, you know, nine, uh, 9 a.m. at 7 minutes and 30 seconds. He wakes up his, because of his alarm clock. If he sees that Fred is still alive, then he has orders to chop off Fred's head. But let's say we... Okay, so if, 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 if Grim Reaper number 3 chops his head off, then Grim Reaper number 2 is going to wake up, see Fred is already dead, and he's going to go back to sleep. Then Grim Reaper number 1 is going to wake up, see that Fred is already dead, and he's going to go back to sleep. Okay, but what happens when at each half mark, right? So 9.30, then 9.15, then 9.07 in 30 seconds, and then on, and then half of that, and then half of that, and then half of that. Conceivably, mathematically, can, we can keep approximating 9 a.m. without ever reaching 9 a.m. an infinite number of times. So there can be an infinite number of Grim Reapers between 9.30 and 9 a.m., okay? So by just keep having, having the number. And so at each one of those points, we have a Grim Reaper that wakes up and he looks to check and see if Fred is alive. If he's alive, he chops his head off. So here's what we have. <clears throat> we have on one hand, it is certain that Fred will be dead come 9.30. How do we know this? Because if Grim Reaper one wakes up, and Fred is still alive, then Grim Reaper 1 will chop off his head. Okay? But, we also have, on the other hand, a problem, which is that no one Grim Reaper is going to swing their scythe. Not one of them. Because, every Grim Reaper, let's say, we'll designate the term N, right? For any uh, Grim Reaper, right? When he wakes up, uh, he will always find that the Grim Reaper before him cut off Fred's head. And so he will go back to sleep. But this is true of every Grim Reaper. So on one hand, what will, what will actually happen is that every Grim Reaper will not kill Fred and that Fred will most certainly be dead. So both propositions are true 
in this scenario. Because Grim Reaper 1 will not kill Fred. He will not kill him because Grim Reaper 2, if Fred is still alive by uh, 9.15, if Fred is still alive by then, Grim Reaper 2 will kill him. So Grim Reaper 1 will not kill Fred. But Grim Reaper 2 will not kill Fred because if Fred is still alive by 9.07, Grim Reaper 3 will kill Fred. But Grim Reaper 3 will not kill Fred. We know he will not kill Fred. Because if Fred were still alive beforehand, at whatever the half of seven minutes is, then Grim Reaper 4 will kill him. So in other words, no Grim Reaper will swing their scythe, and Fred will be alive. But also, Fred will most certainly die. So Fred will both die, and he will be alive, and he will not die. And so, a contradiction results. This is one of the absurd paradoxes of a causal infinity. And it is more than just absurd, it is a contradiction, which means that in principle it is impossible to happen in reality. So, what do you guys think of that? Kind of a little confused by this whole Grim Reaper thing. I don't know why. I think I'm. Okay. Can you kind of like try to articulate that into a well, question? Okay, so you said that the Grim Reaper 1 would kill him at like this specific time or if he was still alive. If he's still alive. I guess I'm just confused on like how you set that. Yeah, so if Grim Reaper, if, if Fred is still alive at 9.30, Grim Reaper 1 will kill him. Okay. Okay. So Fred will most certainly die. Okay. But we also know with certainty that Grim Reaper 1 will not kill him. Because, uh, because if, because Fred will not make it to Grim Reaper 1. Because there is a Grim Reaper that precedes Grim Reaper 1. And his job is to kill Fred when he awakes. Okay. So we know we know that Fred will die by 9.30, but we also know that Grim Reaper 1 will not kill him because Grim Reaper 2 would have done it. Grim Reaper 2 will not kill him because Grim Reaper 3 would have done it. But this is true of every Grim Reaper. Right? So no matter what N... What number you insert, Grim Reaper 5,000, Grim Reaper 6,000, not any single Grim Reaper will kill Fred. So the schedule, the time, 9.05, mm -hmm. only applies to Fred and not the Grim Reaper. Yeah, the Grim Reapers are not dying. They, they just all want to kill Fred. Right? <laughs> but so what we, what we have is that Fred, we know Fred will die, but we also know that he won't. But that's a contradiction, okay. right? So no, no one Grim Reaper will kill him, but also we know that he must die. And that's an, that's an absurd contradiction. So there's something wrong in this paradox. Now, the final now, uh, paradox I'll give is the paper passer scenario. So if, um, let's say that we designate uh, that there are a bunch of paper passers, and we each one is designated for a certain year, okay, starting at zero BC, and that that one is going to be, you know, starting at one BC for simplicity's sake. At one BC, paper passer one has a job, 
when he gets past the paper, if there's no mark on it, he will put a mark on it. And then, and that will be the end of it, okay? So, but there, at BC2, there's another paper passer, and BC3 and BC4. And if a causal infinite chain is, is possible, right, in reality, then conceivably, th there can be an infinite number of paper passers going back into infinity. So let's say that there's an infinite number of paper passers, and each of their job is, is to pass, to, to check when they, when they receive a paper, to check it to see if it's marked. If it is not marked, they mark it, and then they pass it on. Right? If it is marked, they just pass it on. Right? Um, so that's their job, to check it. If it's not marked, mark it, pass it on. If it is marked, just pass it on. And there's an infinite number of paper pressers, each representing the year. 1 BC, 2 BC, 3 BC, 4 BC, going back into an infinite pass. Okay. The, we have something absurd that results, which is that we will, like the last scenario, we know that the paper will be marked by the time it gets down to, you know, year one, right? Zero BC. Uh, we know it must be because if if the if paper passer number one gets it and it's not marked, he will mark it. But we also know that it will never be marked, right? Because paper passer one is not going to mark it because paper passer two would have already marked it. But paper passer two will not mark it because paper passer three would have already marked it as well. And paper passer three and four and five and six, so on, no one paper passer is going to actually mark it because it, it will already have been marked. But that means if no one paper passer would mark it, or rather is going to mark it, that means that it will not be marked. So you have this impossible scenario where it will definitely be marked, but it will also definitely not be marked. Because no one paper passer will mark it. And so one, one way people could object to this is saying, well maybe no one paper passer marked it, but all the paper passers collectively mark it. Well, then I would ask, if this is possible in reality, right, and, there, and each paper passer is distinct from the next, then there would, there would actually have to be a particular paper passer that actually took his hand and marked the paper, right? So, it would actually have to be one of them, right? In, in, in reality, it would be one of the paper passers because given their job that they don't, the job isn't that they try to all mark it at the same time. The job is that they get handed a paper and they mark it if it's unmarked and then they pass it on or mark or pass it on if it's already marked, right? So um, in reality, there would only be one paper passer that marks it, right? So it's not the collective of all paper passers that mark it. So we know that the, the, the paper would be marked, but we also know that it will not be marked, which is a contradiction. And so, something is wrong with these paradoxes. Something is deeply wrong. 
Next. So, Alexander Proust has a theory called uh, causal finitude, or ca causal finitism. And it basically is a theory that backwards, uh, infinite backwards causal chains are impossible. And the, the following is an argument which I uh, take from uh, Joe Schmidt, which is a really brilliant fellow. Um, it goes as, as follows. If causal finitism is not true, then the above paradoxes are possible. Okay? The above paradoxes are not possible. So, causal finitism is true. The one thing that each of these paradoxes have in common is that they each posit an uh, infinite backwards causal chain. That's what they all have in common. But there's something deeply wrong about each of them. In fact, something that is impossible about each of them. Right? Because they could, you know. But if, if, causal, if, if an infinite causal chain could occur in reality, those paradoxes should be possible. But they're not. So, causal finitism must be true. That an infinite causal chain running backwards cannot happen. If causal finitism is true, there is an uncaused concrete being, right? Because the chain of causes is finite, there has to be a first cause, right? And this first cause cannot be itself caused. That means it's uncaused. If it was caused, then whatever caused it would be prior to it, and it thus it would not be the first cause, right? The, if it's cause, it's not the first cause, but there has to be a first cause, according to causal finitism. Now, it's a con it, this uncaused first cause would be concrete because it can causally interact with other uh, other objects, right? It it itself causes. Contingent beings, premise uh, five, contingent concrete beings are not uncaused. All right? So a contingent being, as we discussed, is a being that does not explain itself because it is unnecessary. Right? It is unnecessary, and yet it exists. But if its existence is unnecessary, and yet it exists, then according to the principle of explanation, it requires an explanation. Okay? So, the conclusion is, there is an uncaused, necessary, concrete being. So this, this first cause is not only uncaused, right? It's actually necessary, because it explains the existence of contingent objects, which themselves are unnecessary. Okay. And so, if, if the first cause were contingent, it would itself need an explanation, right? And therefore, it would have to be second, or third, or fourth in the chain. It would definitely not be the first, right? Whatever the first cause, whatever the first is, right? In order to be first and to not require something to be prior to it that then explains it, 
it would have to be self-explanatory, that is, necessary. Do you guys get how that works? Yeah. Okay. Go forward. Um, so, we were back up here. Um, this is how this thing works. In case you forget any of the definitions, they're right there. Go back. Back? Forward, rather. Go forward. And then, uh, so, we're, we're now going to go into the first contingency argument, which I will be presenting. Go ahead. Forward. Now, here's a question. So, we've arrived at there is a necessary uh, concrete co uh, first cause, right? Uh, which is uncaused, right? So, could it be that the universe is this necessary, uncaused, concrete being? Could it be? So far we've proven that there is an uncaused, necessary, concrete being, but is it possible that the universe is itself this being? There are many reasons to suppose that the universe cannot be the first cause. Today we will explore one in particular. Then we will explore objections to it, and I will give responses to those objections. Okay, well what do you guys think? I'm assuming you don't think that it's going to be the universe. Well, yeah, but I guess I... I you wonder. Would, I'm interested in hearing why. why. Yeah. Okay. Go forward. So, the classical contingency argument starts from the observation that particular objects within the universe are contingent. That is, they are unnecessary and do not explain themselves. And it argues that the universe, as a collection of such contingent objects, must also be contingent, and therefore in need of an explanation or cause. We're going to look at an objection to this, right? Because if the contingency argument is true, the universe is contingent, therefore the universe cannot be the necessary uh, concrete first cause. Um, but we're going to look at one of the biggest objections to the contingency argument, which you will hear a lot from people. Go ahead, forward. Okay, the common objection to the above argument is that it is susceptible to the composition fallacy. The fallacy of composition arises when one infers that something is true of the whole from the fact that it is true of some part of the whole. A trivial example might be, this tire is made of rubber, therefore the vehicle of which it is a part is also made of rubber. Um, this is fallacious because vehicles are made of a variety of parts most of which are not made of rubber. The fallacy of composition can apply even when a fact is true of every proper part of a greater entity, though. A more complicated example might be, no atoms are alive, therefore nothing made up of atoms is alive. This is a statement most people would consider incorrect due to emergence where the whole possesses properties not present in any of the parts. Another example is that each brick in a wall is one pound, therefore the whole wall is one pound. So the contingency argument, right, one version of it, would state that because each part of the universe is contingent, the universe must be contingent. The objector was going to say, well, that's a, that, you're just committing the fallacy of composition. 
right? By saying that the whole must inherit the property of its parts. Well, clearly there are examples where that isn't the case, right? The property of each brick is one pound, therefore the property of the whole wall is one pound. How, how do you guys think initially you want to react to this against the, uh, the skeptic? And it's okay if you don't have anything. Well, you said it all, you know, one pound and the bricks and the tire uh -huh. composition, and mm -hmm. you cannot generalize it, mm -hmm. and that would be... Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. So whenever you encounter an objection that you don't know an answer to, do not despair. Because if, some, if someone did, say, debunk an argument for God's existence, that does not mean that God does not exist. It just means if that objection was successful, that that argument for God's existence does not work to prove its conclusion. Right? So, if the, if the atheist says, ha, I've disproved your argument, therefore God does not exist, then I could say, well, hold on. Just, that does, it doesn't fall that because an argument is bad that there, you know, whatever it's trying to prove does not exist. It just means that that's not a reliable way that we can know it. Um, and you can respond by saying, here, let me give a bad argument for atheism. And then I'll point out the, the flaw in the argument and, there, and then I'll conclude that atheism must not be true, right? He'll be like, whoa, just because you make a bad argument for atheism doesn't, doesn't mean that atheism isn't true. And then I'll say, well, likewise, you're going to have to do more than show that my argument is bad in order to prove that God does not exist. Um, for instance, I'm thinking of the color yellow, but I cannot prove to you that I'm thinking of the color yellow. It's a privately accessible mental state. So if you were to infer that because something is not provable in the ordinary way, that it cannot exist, then you would have to believe that I cannot think of the color yellow because it's not provable to you or not publicly corroborable. But that's clearly not the case. You can think of the color yellow, all right? even if you cannot produce some sort of reliable way for me to know that you're thinking of the color yellow. Okay? So just because something is not provable in an ordinary way does not mean that it does not exist. So the atheist is going to have to do more than show that the argument is bad if he wants to prove atheism. Um, and that goes into the definition of atheism, which I have a blog on, on my website, Symposia Christi. Uh, let's see. Go forward. So, the application of this hasty generalization to the universe is used as a reductio argument in the following manner. The, the objector will say, each brick in a wall is one pound, therefore the whole wall is one pound. And then he will compare that ridiculous example to each thing in the universe is contingent, therefore the whole universe is contingent. In this way, he does a reductio ad absurdum. Um, he shows that our, the, the argument he believes is fallacious. The first statement is clearly false if the objector contends, so is the argument from contingency. Now to my response. Go forward. Although it is true that arguing from parts to holes sometimes results in an untrue statement about the whole, 
This is not always the case. For instance, if all the bricks in a wall are red, the whole wall will be red. If all the tiles in a floor are made of marble, the whole floor will be made of marble. If all the parts in a window are glassy, the whole window will be glassy. If one part of an object has mass, the whole part will have mass. Okay? So, we have an interesting... Uh, here's the thing about the, um, the fallacy of composition, is that it only a, it's, it's, it's only uh, a hasty generalization in some instances. Um, but, uh, such as the one pound brick to the one pound wall. But in some situations, what we find is that sometimes the properties of parts do carry over to the whole, right? Um, that is to say that some properties are whole inherited and some properties are not whole inherited. The question is, which one is the property of contingency? Is that more like being, uh, like having mass? If, if one part of an object has mass, the whole thing will have mass? Or is it more like uh, being one pound, which does not necessarily carry, carry over to the whole? The question is, which one is the property of contingency more, more like? It might be the case that, the conting that contingency is a property that is whole inherited. That is, it is conceivable that the universe is contingent. And, I will argue, if it is conceivable that the universe is contingent, then we have some evidence that it is, in fact, contingent. Go forward. Okay. The question is, does the universe exist necessarily? Or does it con exist contingency? What is relevant for my argument is Leibniz's law, which states that A is equal to B if and only if they share all of the same properties. Now, the universe exists. And here's one thing that we know about the universe. Namely, that it is possibly contingent. Let us designate the property, quote, possibly contingent as X, right? Now, here's something else we know about necessary things, namely that they cannot be possibly contingent. Let us designate the property not possibly contingent, end quote, as Y. Here is the result. Our actual universe has a property X which means it is possibly contingent. But a necessary universe would not have the property X, and instead it would have the property Y, which means not possibly contingent. But the actual universe cannot be identical to a necessary universe unless they share all the same properties per Leibniz's law. The inevitable conclusion is that our actual universe is not a necessary universe. Go forward. Now, just to have this in standard form, this is my argument. 
every observable object is contingent. And by the way, this is an inductive argument. So I'm arguing from particulars, and I am generalizing to a whole, which is something that we do all the time in, in everyday life. Uh, we use inductive logic. Um, so you know, every observable object is contingent. Right? I see a, a, a rabbit be born, it eventually dies. Right? It is apparently not necessary. Okay? And that's the case with every particular object that I witness. So, probably, each thing in the universe is contingent. At that, premise, that premise or conclusion really seems more plausible than not. Right? I am generalizing to the universe based on every observable thing in my experience. And I have not had any counterfactual example of a, of a, of a, of a, you know, of a thing inside the universe that is not contingent. All right, so three, and I guess I misnumbered that the typo. Three, sometimes properties of parts are whole inherited. Sometimes they are. Like in the case of one part of something having mass, so the whole part has mass. Therefore, probably, and I'm carrying over the probably from premise two, right? I'm, in, I'm now in uh, the fourth proposition. Probably, it is possible that the universe is contingent. Five, a necessary universe lacks the property possibly contingent. Six, so the actual universe is probably not identical to a necessary universe, per Leibniz's law. Seven, therefore, probably the actual universe is contingent. So, this, this is based on, the, one of the critical premises is that sometimes the properties of parts are whole inherited. Okay. And what we do witness in, in the case of our universe is that everything we notice is contingent. Right? And it may even be the case that this argument can succeed without premise two. Probably each thing in the universe is contingent. In the case of an object where one part of it has mass, even if no other parts have mass, the whole object would still have mass. So it isn't necessary that each, in, in order for contingency as a property to be whole inherited by the universe, it is not necessary that every single part of the universe be contingent. In fact, it might only be necessary that one part of it be contingent in order for the whole universe to inherit the property of contingency. Right? So, even without premise two, I can actually still go forward and say, because some properties of parts are whole inherited, and I do see that some parts of the universe are contingent, that probably 
it is possible that the universe is contingent. Now, possibly contingent is not a property of a necessary universe. A necessary universe, by definition, is necessary. It is not, it is not even possible for it to not be necessary, because it is necessary. Right? There is no, if, if an object is necessary, there is no possible world where it does not obtain. Right? So, if the universe was necessary, then it can't even be possible for it to be unnecessary. But, if our universe has that property of being possibly contingent, right, then it is not identical to a necessary universe. And if it's not identical, that is sharing all the same properties, then it is in fact not necessary. It is not a necessary universe. And if our universe is not necessary, then it's contingent. So. Do you have any questions on that before we go forward? I know it was kind of heady. I'm kind of confused. Like, how do we know that that our universe, like, obviously, Christians, I know this isn't true, but like, how do we know that it's not necessary? Like, just I don't know. I don't, it's hard. It's hard to explain. I guess. So, so here's the thing. Um, in in a situation where we have one, okay, so say that we, we don't see the whole, but we see a part. And the part has a certain property, right? So it is, it is probably, it is possible that the whole inherits that property, right? So it is probably the case that it possibly inherits that property. Okay. Even okay, so even if you can't see the rest of it, um, because how do we know that? Because in within our experience, we do witness that sometimes properties are whole inherited from their parts, right? As uh, for instance, a marble floor or, or every tile in a marble is uh, sorry every every tile on a floor is marble, so the whole floor will be marble. And actually, we also notice that in every case that we can see, contingency is usually whole inherited when it comes to things within the universe. So if every tile in a floor is contingent or unnecessary, the floor will also be contingent and unnecessary. And we don't know of any counterfactual example where contingency is not whole inherited, at least within the things that we can observe. Right? So that's sort of an inductive argument, right? In everything we can, in, in, in every case that we can examine, um, contingency is whole inherited, right? So if every part of a building is contingent, the whole building is contingent, right? Not so with one pound, right? Uh, not so in every scenario, but we can't actually come up with any counterfactual examples when it comes to contingency. So, it inductively, we can now make the generalization that probably, and I'm not even making this assertion, but probably, right, 
contingency is whole inherited by the whole universe. But I'm not even making that strong assertion. I'm just saying that based on all the can uh, examples of, of things that contain contingent parts, contingency is always whole inherited in every case that we can examine. Also, we know that sometimes uh, wholes inherit the property of their parts. So, it, it uh, is probable that it is possible that the universe is contingent. Now, if it's even possible that the universe is contingent, that it is already disqualified from being necessary. Okay? Because a necessary thing cannot even possibly be unnecessary. Because by the definition of necessary, it must obtain in all possible worlds. There's not a single possible world where it is unnecessary. Right? So it's not possible for it not to be necessary, if it's necessary. But the universe is possibly contingent. right? And so therefore, I would argue that the actual universe that we're in cannot be identical to a necessary universe. That makes sense? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Go forward. In, in the previous argument, you have, you have the case where in every observable case that we witness in the universe, contingency, the property of contingency, is whole inherited from the parts. Right? Um, so we have a sort of reason to lean towards contingency being one of those properties that are whole inherited, right? Um, if every part of the couch is contingent, the whole thing's contingent. The whole couch is contingent, okay? Um, so we have a reason to lean towards their, uh, th the property of contingency being whole inherited. And if that's the case, then it can even be the case if everything beyond our observation turns out to, you know, uh, to be radically different from what we perceive. Um, because even in, in the case of whole, uh, properties which are whole inherited, sometimes they are whole inherited even when no other parts are, are, uh, are, are, have that property. Like one part having mass, the whole thing will have mass. Okay? So it's even the case that, it can, uh, that contingency can be whole inherited even if the rest of the universe is not like what we normally see. Um, witnessing being birthed, dying, it being intuitively unnecessary. Um, so it, it seems to be the case that that justifies our assertion that probably, right, probably the universe is contingent, right? Um, but I'm not even making that strong claim. I'm saying that um, probably the universe is possibly contingent. And, and that is based on the supposition that sometimes properties are whole inherited. Right? And contingency might be one of those properties. So if we just start with probably the universe uh, is possibly contingent or might be contingent, then we can already rule it out um, as being necessary because a necessary universe would not carry the property, quote, possibly contingent, end quote. Because a necessary universe would be necessarily necessary, right? 
um, it would, uh, by definition, it could not even possibly be otherwise. And so by Leibniz's law, because our actual universe and a necessary universe, um, hypothetically, do not share all the same properties, we can know that our universe is probably not a necessary universe. Okay? It is probably a contingent one. And so, where does that leave us? It leaves us right here. Number one, based on um, the conclusion of Pruss's argument, uh, there is an uncaused, necessary, concrete being that explains the existence of all concrete contingent objects. Number two, based on my, my argument from contingency, the universe is probably contingent. The conclusion is that there is probably, or the, the conclusion is that the universe is probably caused by a necessary concrete being. Okay. Now, in this uh, lesson, um, as you noticed from the very beginning, I said Kalam part one. Next week we're going to be doing Kalam part two, and Kalam part two is where, is where I'm going to be arguing that this necessary concrete first cause is personal, and that it shares many of the same, att same attributes traditionally associated with God in, in, in the Western tradition. All-powerful um, and all-knowing, uh, all all-good, personal, um, timeless, Space, spaceless, incorporeal, immaterial, and all of the rest. Um, but today, I'm, I'm focusing on the, uh, the fact that there is a necessary concrete being. And next week, we will see why this being must be God. A personal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-good God. Alright, and that's it. Any questions?